So remember that when the letter was written from Paul to the Romans, there, there were no chapter divisions and verses with numbers like we have in our Bibles today. So chapter 15 is a continuation of chapter 4 as we know it. And in the first couple of verses in chapter 15, Paul summarizes the whole discussion that he had in chapter 14 by admonishing the strong, that's the mature Christian, and he includes himself in that. He begins with, we then ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. So that's how he begins this chapter. It's a summary. Urging the strong to bear the weaknesses of those who do not have that ability. They haven't reached the level of spiritual maturity. And he says, you need to do this for their good rather than looking out for yourself. So how, how is this going to work out? And we'll get to that a little bit, but simply put, the strong, the mature Christian must bear the weakness of the less mature by gently building them up in the faith. That's what we need to do. Now the hard part is convincing a weak Christian that he is weak. Because in the context here, the weak were probably thinking the strong were, were weak because they were eating meat that was forbidden by the Mosaic law. And they hadn't realized that God had done away with all of those dietary restrictions and holy days of obligation and prohibitions concerning wine. So they hadn't reached a level yet where they, they knew the liberty they have in Christ. And strong believers who know their liberty also know the limits of their liberty, so that it doesn't turn into a license to do whatever they want to do. So look at the summary in the first two verses. We then, who are strong, ought to, and that simply means are obligated, to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And again, this is nothing new. You've heard this for the last couple of weeks. We ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now, what, are, what does the word scruples mean? Well, if you looked it up in the dictionary, Cambridge Dictionary, it would say something to the effect that a scruple is an ethical consideration that prevents you from doing something that you think is morally wrong or makes you uncertain about doing it. Now, people who just live any kind of a lifestyle they want, we typically say of them, they have no scruples. They have no ethical and moral considerations of what's right and wrong. But in this instance, the weak, they have an overly sensitive conscience, thinking that they, they cannot eat meat. The strong have no such misinformed conscience. And again, I've said this repeatedly, how do you build yourself up in the faith? How do you renew your mind? How do you come to maturity? How do you develop a, a mature conscience? By the Word of God. Repeated exposure to the Word of God. So he says you ought to bear with the infirmities. Asthenes is the word, weaknesses. This is the very same word that he began chapter 14 in verse 1 when he talked about the strong and the weak. 
And I mentioned then, and I'll say it again, weak can refer, this word in the New Testament often refers to a physical weakness, even people who were sick unto death. Or it can refer to a spiritual weakness, like an immaturity. And that's the application here. These people were spiritually immature, the weak. But I'll say this. Besides a weak conscience in this context, not able to discern their liberty in Christ, weak Christians are those who have not matured from consistent exposure to God's word and preaching of God's word, fellowship of the saints, and they haven't developed spiritual muscle to resist temptation. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And this is the garden scene. And he said to Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? And one hour in prayers, that takes some effort, doesn't it? I think we we might all have fallen asleep. But look what Jesus says. Watch and what? And pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, this body that we have, this, this body with this sin nature, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's true, isn't it? It's like dieting. You know, the spirit says, don't eat that piece of chocolate cake. But the flesh says, but it looks so good. You know? So what do you do typically? I'll just have a sliver. So, and then the sliver is so good. That you eat the rest of the piece of the cake, right? Or secondly, we Christians lack spiritual discernment and easily fall victim to false teaching. And there is no lack of false teachers out there. There were false teachers in Jesus' day. The New Testament warnings are repeated over and over again about false teaching, false prophets. So the person who is weak, immature, he will fall victim to false teaching he will fall victim to people who will manipulate them for their own gain. In other words, they can be easily deceived. There's this passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you can look at that if you want, or you could pay attention closely. But 2 Peter 2, 1, Peter says this, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Those are heresies that will, could lead to damnation. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And then 2 Peter 2, 2, here's what Peter says. And not, not few, not some, but many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. They blaspheme the word of God. And then he goes on and he says, by covetousness, that means the love of silver, if you would translate it literally. Covetousness is the love of silver, the love of money. By covetousness, they will exploit you. With what? Deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. God says they will get theirs in the proper time, the judgment. Now, the King James is is a good translation, actually, on this. It says they will make merchandise of you. False teachers will make merchandise of you. And I say that's a good translation because the Greek word emporuomai, 
meant to travel for the purpose of conducting trade. So it refers literally to a traveling merchant. These false teachers and deceivers were, were false merchants, or fa- false teachers were, were making money off of people. They were like merchants traveling about in that world. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. And then the phrase, buy and sell, is the same word, make merchandise. Buy and sell and make a profit. Wow. False teachers make lots of money off of the people that they deceive. And there's no shortage of these prosperity preachers. And you know what's interesting? They often travel from city to city holding their miracle crusades minus the miracles. Right? So when we think of prosperity preachers, you know, I could name a lot of names that come to mind. I think of the guy with the smiling face and the slick looking hair. Joel Osteen. <laughs> Creflo Dollar. What an interesting name for false prosperity teaching. Creflo Dollar. I mean, that should have raised the you know, red flag right away. Benny Hinn. You know, Kevin or Co- <laughs> Kenneth Copeland. So you think of that category of prosperity preachers who manipulate people for, for their own gain. But you know, manipulation can also happen in evangelical mega churches. Celebrity pastors can manipulate people. It can happen in fundamental Baptist churches. Manipulation takes place in independent Bible churches. It happens in in many churches through skillful manipulation designed, listen to me, as being faithful to the Lord in your giving, right? Or your service or your time. All those things are proper in their proper place. Being faithful to the Lord in your giving, your service, or your time. But a preacher can manipulate that and put you under guilt to give more and more money, to give more and more of your time, to give more and more of your service. And really what they're doing is they manipulate you by demanding your allegiance to them as proof of your allegiance to Christ. We've all seen it. We all know it's true. And people need to run away from that type of manipulation. That is not healthy, authentic Christianity, no matter what church it's found in. So that little bit of warning there. False teachers aren't the only ones who can use their position for gain. Now the one thing main thing that the weak and the strong owe each other is what? Their obligation as fellow believers to love one another. And you could look back in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. What does Paul say? Owe no one. And that's the same word. Don't be obligated to anything except to love one another. For he who loves another, particularly his brother in Christ, has fulfilled the law. Remember, you could summarize the law. Jesus summarized it as loving God first, above everything else. And then from that devotion to God comes love from your, for your fellow man, your family, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbors, which is an all-encompassing type of a word. Typically, in, in the gospel times, the neighbor meant an, a fellow Jewish individual. But look back in Romans 15.1, then, we then who are strong are obligated to bear with the scruples of the weak. And then he says, not to please ourselves. That little phrase, ought to, I translated it obligated to, it speaks of a moral obligation. You have a moral obligation. And actually, in, in the secular Greek world, it was used of a, of a person who had a financial debt. They were carrying a financial debt. Now, if you're carrying a financial debt of any kind, you are obligated to do what? To pay it back. To pay the loan back. To pay it off. That's a moral obligation that you have, and often, of course, a legal obligation as well. So this idea of you know, owing something to someone is prominent in the New Testament. Under the Roman patronage system, there was a social moral obligation for the rich. The rich were called in that time the aristocrats or the patrons. And they were morally obligated to provide for the poor class called the plebeians. And you really had those two classes. You really didn't have much of a middle class. You had the rich and the poor. And in exchange, the plebeians, they owed a loyalty, a debt to the rich. They couldn't pay them financially because they were poor, but they owed a debt to them to do service to them. In Romans chapter 16, next chapter over, Paul says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church. Well, what a blessing, right? Here's a rich woman, and she's a servant to the church. She is a servant of the church in Centria. And then Paul says, I want you, you're obligated to, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and you are obligated to assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for she indeed has been a helper of many people and myself also. So when he says she has been a helper, the word is prostatus, and it means patron. So, so she was a, a rich individual. She was an aristocrat. She was a patron. She was very wealthy. And she used her wealth to serve the Lord and the church and to help many people. Now, the house churches in that day were not like this, where a lot of people came together in a big building. The, the house churches were conducted in the homes of the wealthy because they had bigger homes. So if she, this is how it worked. Paul tells the less wealthy there to receive Phoebe in the Lord and assist her. It, <coughs> it was their obligation, their debt to her for the service that she was rendering to the church. You look in verse 22 of Romans 16. Paul says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. So, no doubt, Erastus was a man of significance. And this is, what is, this is what is good about the Bible. 
God uses significant men. Amen? Excuse me. Here's a patron. Thank you. So God uses the significant men like Phoebe or like Erastus. God uses rich men. Abraham was a very rich man. God uses poor men. And God uses everyone in between the rich and the poor. And God uses both strong Christians and weak Christians. And the strong have an obligation to the weak to help them grow. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now bear with, when you think of the word bear with, you think of, oh, man, just bear with that guy. You think of what? Patience, right? I got to have patience with this person because they're getting on my nerves or whatever it is. But that's not the meaning of the word here. The word bear with the scruples, the misinformed conscience of the weak, literally means to carry or to lift up like you would bear a weight upon your back, to take it upon yourself. So it doesn't mean to be patient with them, although that is something that we all must do, right? To be patient with one another. But let me give you a couple of scriptures where this word is used. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we're to bear our own burdens, but there are people who have excessive burdens. So what Paul is saying, and this is why we have a benevolent fund, and we don't always give it to people who, sometimes we just, we give it as we think, you know, there would be a, a, a good use for it in particular family who might not, you know, be able to do something otherwise. But there's a lot of reasons why we do it. It's just not a matter of rich and poor. But bear one another's burdens. So there's a Christian. You're carrying your own burdens. We all have burdens. I have burdens. We all have burdens. But we don't have excessive burdens. So when Paul says bear one another's burdens, he's saying you who are strong... And you who are able to come along and lift some of the weight of those burdens off their shoulders. You know, you you, you don't come along and say, oh, you shouldn't be feeling like that. Trust the Lord, you know, all of these platitudes and throw a couple scripture verses and that's it. No, you're, you're to lift. You're to help lift those burdens off them. And he says, when you do that, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. What law? The royal law of love the royal law of Christ. You're acting like Christ because that's what he did. John 19, 17, and he, bearing his cross, lifting it, it's not a matter of patience, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. So how does a mature Christian carry or bear the scruples, the misinformed conscience of the weak? That's that's an interesting thing. You, You don't necessarily go and become just like them. But, but I think it works this way. First of all, you have to recognize their immaturity. Not everybody's on the same plane, right? We have people here at every different level in, the, in their stage of growth. I was sharing in Sunday school class, if you read First John, he talks about children, young men, and fathers. He says he addresses children, young men and fathers in that epistle. Well, the children are the real real immature in the church. Babes in Christ are maybe a little bit past that. Then the young men are in a 
process of growth. Young women are in a process of growth. And then the fathers is a blanket term talking about the spiritually mature. So that's what you have in every church. So you need to think of yourself, what, where, what am I? I'm, am, I, am I in the children category? Am I in the young men category? Or, or can I be considered a father, a spiritual father or spiritual mother, immature? That's what we need to strive for. So then he says, do things for the good of your neighbor, in this case would be your brother, and not to please yourself. Bear with the scruples of the weak and not please yourself. So if I am weak and you are strong, you have an obligation to help lift my weak conscience to the point of me being able to see my liberties in Christ and properly exercise them. You cannot use your strength, your maturity, to destroy me. We already saw that in chapter 14. You have to gently lift the legalistic burden from a person. People, people, when they grow up in certain types of churches, they're filled with guilt because that's what the preaching from the pulpit lays upon them over and over again, beyond what the Scripture says. And, and, and boy, they're paralyzed by that because they're, they're afraid that if they you know, don't fulfill the wishes of the pastor, they're, they're being disloyal to Jesus Christ. So they're hampered in their spiritual life. You need to help them come to maturity that way. It's a sacrificial, sacrificial, non-self-serving act to bear with the weaknesses of those individuals. And he says, don't do things to please yourself, but to edify your neighbor. Now, edification, we talked about that. The verse was used in chapter 14. We use it often in the church. Edification is a compound word composed of two words, oikos, which means house, and doma, which means top or roof of the house. So when you think of edification, you think of an edifice, a building transferred spiritually. It means literally, in Latin, it meant spiritual improvement comes from a participle meaning aid of the care to build to build so when we edify somebody we build them up do you have anybody in your life that you're edifying is there anybody in your life that you are spiritually building up trying to take them to the place where you are you know if you play tennis and you play tennis you play somebody who is you know, not as good as you are or equal with you, your game will never really advance. If you really want to get better at something, you play somebody who is better than yourself. And that's how you, how you, how you get better. So if you're a weak Christian, you want to latch on to a strong one. And, and they will build you up. They will edify you. Vine's Dictionary, Biblical Dictionary, says edification is more than just encouragement. It includes any activity that results in more Christ-likeness, either in oneself or in another believer. So that's what, that's what we're aiming for, right? We're all aiming for that, to be Christ-like. 
Ephesians 4.11 says this, and he gave, this is Jesus, when he ascended on high, he gave, he himself gave, gave some to be apostles. These, these are the gifts to the church. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, we don't have those offices anymore, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, or depending how you interpret this grammatically, pastors dash teachers, signifying that every pastor is to be a teacher. For what? Ephesians 4.12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, building up, strengthening of the body of Christ. Now when you look at that verse and you think about that verse, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the edification of the saints or the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the, for the building up the body of Christ. Who is to do the work of the ministry? The saints. The pastor's primary role, and he participates in the functions of the church like this, different, different things, but his primary responsibility is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's it. That's the primary function of a pastor teacher. So that the whole church is built up, edified, and strengthened. You know, we have a nursery in the church for the little ones. We don't have a spiritual nursery. And we, you know, we don't assign people to, 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 to some type of spiritual nursery. And that's because the, the babe in Christ stage, the children, remember? Young men, fathers, that babe in Christ stage, children, should not last long after salvation. I said this before. God has a reasonable expectation of spiritual growth in the lives of his children, just like you have a reasonable expectation for growth in, in, in your own ch- children's development. So we're not to be people pleasers, he says, and, and the, the pleasing here is not people pleasing like we usually think of it. Let me turn to a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Is it here? Yeah. <laughs> It means it was near at hand there. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, that means felt needs or wants. Pastor's responsibility is to not give people what, what they think they need, but what he thinks they need. Not, don't cater to their felt needs or wants, but these people were doing that. They had itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions their own desires. Telling people what you think will please them to gain them is manipulating them and using them. And that's what false teachers do, as I said before. That's bad people pleasing. Church has been plagued with that. I'm going to read you a little portion. You don't have to turn here. But from Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14 begins with the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah Concerning the droughts, the droughts, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. 
They returned with their vessels empty. And he goes on to describe this terrible famine that came on the land because of a lack of water. It, it was a judgment from, from God. Jeremiah was a faithful prophet. God called him in his mother's womb. God set him apart in his mother's womb for this role that he would play, that he would have. And he didn't even want the job. Because nobody listened to him. And even at one point, Jeremiah says, God, you know, he's being just as honest as you could be. You've deceived me, in a sense. He thought he was going to have a fruitful ministry, but God never did deceive him in any way. But he had some struggles, like we all would. But he'd go on, after it describes this famine and, and everything that was coming. And in verse 11 of Jeremiah 14, Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people, for their good. See, there's a time when you can pray and pray and pray, and then there's a time when you've got to turn somebody over to the Lord because their heart is so hardened. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. And it was already in process. And Jeremiah, don't pray for him. It's too late. The window of prayer is closed. Then, then I said, Oh Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You will not see the sword, nor, your, nor, nor will you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So Jeremiah is saying, The Lord, the, the prophets out here are telling them they're not going to experience judgment. And the Lord said to me, the prophet's prophecy lay, lies in my name. I have not sent them. How many people are out there claiming to be messengers of God? God has not sent them. I have not spent, sent them. I have not commanded them. I have not spoken to them. I haven't put my words in their mouth is what he's saying. So they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. And then God says he's going to bring judgment on only to people, but on those prophets. They were making money. They were, they were gaining reputation and standing in that day by telling the people what they wanted to hear. But God says, I haven't told them that. I haven't put those words in in their mouth. Telling people what you think will please them to gain is manipulating. That's bad people pleasing. Paul was not that kind of a people pleaser. Look in Galatians 1.10 here. It says, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul did not shape his ministry around what he thought the people wanted to hear. Because he said, if I did that, I would no longer be serving Jesus Christ. I would be serving the people. Their needs, or their, their wishes, their wants. So he says, I don't please men. But on the other hand, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10.32. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. That's the three categories of people in this world. You have Jews, Gentiles, 
And then you have the church of God composed of Jews and Gentiles. So that's an easy way to think of the divisions of people in this world. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God, which is composed of saved Jews and saved Gentiles. Just as I also, he says, please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, so it wasn't about money for himself, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So here's what Paul is saying. He sought to please men insofar as he could without disobeying God so that people could be one to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, because he was the servant of Christ, I made my servant to all so that I, I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the laws, under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. That was the Jews. To those who are without the law, that's the Gentiles, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do, he says, not to please myself, not for profit, but this I do for the gospel's sake. Your Christian freedom in Christ, properly understood, allows you to take obstacles out of the way that other people are stumbling on. And you do that, you try to even take those obstacles out of their, their way in, in order to, to make your path of evangelism easier and, and more effective. So if there's an obstacle that somebody has because they're weak, they think they can't eat meat, you're going to take that obstacle out of the way. You're going to become like weak to them. In other words, you're not going to go there and offend them by eating your meats. But your purpose is to what? To win them, to gain them. Now, whenever you do that, become all things to all men, it must be done in a way that is consistent with the moral law of God and which makes the gospel message clear. It must persuade people toward the truth. That's your purpose, rather than encourage them to remain in, in their weakness or in their opposition to the gospel. So you have to be very careful with that. And it takes the Spirit's working to please God and to please men without being a stumbling block to them and without compromise. Because you can easily compromise. You could take, I'll become all things to all men. I'm going to go have a beer in the bar with my buddies because I want to win them to Christ. That's not the application. John Brown in his commentary on 1 Peter says this, and I, I like this because we're going to be bringing this liberty thing to discussion or to close here. Christian liberty, your liberty, is an internal thing. It belongs to the mind and conscience and has a direct reference to God, you and God. That's Christian liberty internally. The use of Christian liberty is an external thing. It belongs to conduct and has reference to man. So no consideration should prevail upon us for a moment to give up the essence of our liberty. It's an internal thing between me and God. I know I can eat all kind of meat 
or whatever it is, whatever food it is, because there's nothing unclean. That's an internal thing. But outwardly, the external use of my liberty has reference to man, and I have to consider where he or she is at in their stage of spiritual growth. Growth. So he says, no consideration should prevail upon us for a moment to give up the essence of our liberty, that internal thing. But many a consideration should induce us to forego the practical assertion or display of our liberty because that's an external thing in reference to men. So I can, I can go to your house and, and I'm not going to take, if, if, if you don't eat meat, you're a Jew, still under the Old Testament law, I mean, you just come out of Judaism, you're a new believer. I, I'm not going to you know, take, take meat over to your house if you invite me for a potluck. But internally, I know I have the liberty to do that. I know I have the liberty because it's in reference to God. But externally, the application to men is, I have to forego that liberty for your sake because you're a weaker brother. So the question then is, how far should you go in accommodating the people you encounter with the gospel? You want to win them to Christ? I'm going to go drink with them, right? I'm going to go, they invited me to go watch this movie that you know is really not good. You, could, you can think of all kinds of scenarios. How far should you go in accommodating the people you encounter with the gospel? And here's what I put. As far as the boundaries of God's word will allow you to go. And no, no step further. We're bound by the word of God. And then he goes on here, verse 3, I'm almost getting too close here. The example of unselfish love is, the most perfect example of unselfish love is Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but to uh, serve and give his life a ransom for many. In verse 3 of Romans 15, says, For even Christ did not please himself. Just read Philippians 2 if you don't think that's true. What he gave up. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me, Christ. This is a messianic psalm that we read from, Psalm 69. The book of Romans, when we started this, I told you it is filled, saturated with Old Testament citations. But to go back from Psalm 69, verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So I I see that psalm, or that psalm, and I realize that it's saying, God haters also hate Jesus. The reproaches of those who hate you, God, fell on me, Jesus. God haters hate Jesus also. You think about Jesus, he gave up everything for us. He took our punishment, he took our shame. He didn't come to serve. He didn't come to please himself. He laid his glories aside, took upon himself the form of a man and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And remember, according to Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangeth upon a tree. So when he was hanging upon that tree, the Son of God, Perfect God and perfect man. The sinless one. They were mocking him. They were, they were reproaching him. They were offering him vinegar and gall. If you're God, if you're God, take yourself down from this cross if you claim to be who you are. And he bore that. 
for us. Listen, nobody likes to be rebuked, right? Nobody likes to be reproached. The natural reaction is to what? Say something back. To defend yourself. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. And then he goes in verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. What scriptures is he referring to? The Old Testament scriptures. Now, a simple maxim to remember is that the Old Testament is all for us. It's all for our admonition, all for our instruction, but it is not all to us. You understand that, right? The Jews were under the Old Testament. So we can learn from the Old Testament, but we cannot claim every promise in it. Some promises were made to certain individuals. Some promises were made nationally, nationalistically, to the nation of Israel. Now, the universal moral laws from the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, nine out of ten are repeated in the New Testament. The one that is not repeated is the Sabbath commandment need to remember that the Mosaic Law was a treaty that God made with Israel. Great confusion arises when you fail to distinguish between the Old and the New. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Israel and the Church. The Church is not Israel. I, I've used the illustration, a lot of times people say, tithing, you give your 10%. So then you feel real good about it because the Old Testament says bring your tithes into the storehouse. And you feel real good about it. You gave your 10%. Well, the tithe was to the Jewish people. It's not to the Christians. And people fail to distinguish that. It was their income tax under a theocracy. And if you calculated the taxes that they had to give from their goods and their their, the fruit of their vines and their animals and herds, it came to 23.5%. That's pretty high income tax. And it was used to support the, the priesthood and the other things in Israel that need to, needed to be, to be done. So technically speaking, they didn't give unless they went above 23.5%. So if you want to tithe, go ahead and tithe, but you know, start at 23.5%. I'll check. <laughs> no, the New Testament is grace. It's not legalistic law-dominated formulas or anything like that. And three principles govern New Testament giving. Lay aside each week. I mean systematic. In proportion to the way God has blessed you. Proportionately. And cheerfully. Systematically, proportionately, and cheerfully. That's New Testament giving. That's what the Bible teaches. So, like Leviticus. How should Christians understand and apply the teachings of Leviticus today? What is, it, what is the main truth that it expresses? Over and over again, in many, many ways, that God is holy. That's why you have all these laws of separation. The sacrificial system and the many laws of the holiness code... And that's what Leviticus is. It's a holiness code. Are not applicable today. You couldn't apply them if you wanted to. 
But holiness and separation are still practiced in the church in our individual lives, right? So the Old Testament scriptures, Paul says, were written for our learning. We can learn from Leviticus that God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's the main takeaway. So when it's all said and done, Paul calls the strong and weak to accept one another because of the unity that Christ created in the church by accepting them both, Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to go on in this chapter to talk about the Gentiles' inclusion in the plan of God in fulfillment of the Scriptures because God said that that would occur. And then he says, whatever things were written before for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So the Scriptures fill the hungering soul with, with patience and with hope. Barnes' commentary On the King James word patience, this does not mean, as our translation might seem to suppose, patience of the scriptures. But it means that by patiently enduring sufferings in connection with the consolation which the scriptures furnish, we will have hope. Everybody here at times seeks the counsel and the consolation of other men and women. Pity the person who has nobody to go to. So we all seek the counsel and the consolation of other men and women. But I want to say to you this morning, no man, no woman, no layman, no so-called professional counselor can ever do the work of God. They cannot do the work of the word of God in your life. So if you abandon God's word, you can go to all the counselors you want. If you abandon God's word and the daily input of the word of God in your life, you're casting hope aside. And hope is a beautiful word, right? It's repeated over and over and over again in both the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 42, 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Do you ever have this kind of a conversation with yourself? That's what the psalmist is doing. Why are, you, why are you cast down? He's speaking to himself. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted and, and troubled within me? Hope thou in God. This is a good conversation to have with yourself. For yet I will praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So, so David knew what it was like to go from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory. Because the word of God was his daily food. More than his necessary food. Just look what he read in Psalm 119 about the word of God. The word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against it. The word have I hidden in my heart that I might have hope. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Psalm 146, 5, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. What differentiates Christians from the world? Well, a lot of things, right? But Ephesians 2.12, Paul speaking to the Gentiles, he says that at that time you were without Christ, before they were saved. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
You were strangers from the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in this world. Listen, that is the state of the natural man. Without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in this world. You might be working alongside people just like that. But hope is a beautiful thing when it blossoms in the heart. You know, somebody was sharing today, I think it was Richard, about the deserts now. The desert is starting to come into bloom, right? And I don't know if you've gone out there to Anza Brego or wherever it is when the desert starts to bloom. You've got to catch it. There's a real short window. But, you know, that's what God wants the hope to do. He, want, he wants it to bloom in our heart and not fade away like the desert blooms. Which one of us have not profited from reading about no obeying God and building an ark on dry land? That's faith, right? And that's hope. Abraham willing to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, because he believed God would raise him from the dead. That's faith. That's hope. Moses facing down the mighty Pharaoh and saying, this is what the Lord God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. That's boldness. That's faith. And that's hope. Joseph seemingly forgotten in prison, only to rise to second in command in Egypt, because that hope never died in his heart. The troubles of Job, who in spite of his great losses, unimaginable losses, could proclaim, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's hope. David, a young shepherd boy standing up to a Philistine giant, you coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's faith. That's courage. That's hope. Daniel in the lion's den. Right? The three Hebrew youths willing to die by fire, but still believing that God could deliver them. That's hope. All of those men I mentioned and many more lived by the comfort and the hope of the scriptures. They had no human counselors except for Job. And Job called them miserable comforters. You know the best thing they did? was when they came alongside him and kept their mouths shut. Said nothing. The believer whose mind is filled with scriptures will not give up hope even when the storms of life are raging. Psalm 119, 116, Uphold me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed or disappointed in my hope. The word of God, he, em- he emphasizes. Romans 15, 13, now, may the God of, what? Hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I told you the story one time, I was walking Cal's Mountain, I seen this guy up in front of me, he was younger than me and he could outwalk me, but I could tell he was deliberately slowing down. And I don't think he was getting tired. He wanted me to catch up. So I walked up alongside him, we started talking. 
told me he wanted to kill himself. He said, I can't, get, I can't get away from this. And I shared the gospel with him, and then I had that little card with me that I have this verse on, and I says, look here, and I gave him this card. This is my prayer for you. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. I said, right now you're hopeless. Everything, you feel hopeless, and that's why you want to give up on life. You point him to Christ. You point him to the hope. Look how I put it in your bulletin. Close with this. Abounding hope, or your outline, abounding hope leaves no permanent room for depression, despair, or giving up. Abounding hope, because that's what Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joys and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Abounding hope expects nothing less than great things from God. Amen? Abounding hope always points us in the direction of Christ. When you are at your lowest, go to Jesus. Abounding hope rests in Christ's perfect love for us. Abounding hope overcomes the darkness of the moment with the light of Christ. Abounding hope sees beyond the present. And I'm not saying you're going to have difficult times and you know, easy times in the present. You won't. You'll have dark times. You'll, you'll have despair at times. But abounding hope sees beyond the present to the future, which God has laid in store for his children. Just think of Romans 8, the end of it. Abounding hope is the anchor for the soul. It's the balm of Gilead. It's the bright in the morning star, the star that shines the brightest in the sky. And then I put this, because I really believe this. Hope is an expectation with certainty that God will do what he has said. That's why it doesn't disappoint us. It's an expectancy and a certainty that we have that God will do what he has said. That's why Job could say, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It is based on the character of God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Listen to me. It's not a platitude. It's not somebody coming, oh, have hope. Just have hope. The hope I'm talking about is based on the character of a God who cannot lie. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But if you're struggling, it's good to have somebody alongside you, right? You find somebody you can go alongside. And they, and they can help lift you up. They can help point you to the Lord. And the promises of his word, because oftentimes we have all those promises, but when things overwhelm us, we, we kind of forget them. And you know why the reason? You know what the reason for that is? We're human. We're frail. We're weak. We just need to be reminded that God knows we're weak. And that when we're weak, we can be strong because of Christ. We have to rest in him. Come into me, all ye labor who are, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the only one who can ultimately give you rest.